0: Hello and welcome to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Brendan Bachelor, joined as always by Randeep Janda. We are the Canucks play-by-play and color commentary team right here on Sportsnet 650. And we've got a lot of stuff to get into this week, Randeep. The Canucks made a couple of trades. They've played a few games, most recently losing to the Vegas Golden Knights on home ice on Thursday night. And they've got a big Saturday matchup coming up with the Calgary Flames as well.
1: Yeah, games and transactions galore. Patrick Alvine has been busy, Rick Tockett's been busy, and we're going to get into it all today on In the Booth. As as you mentioned it, there's a big tilt coming up against the Calgary Flames who are starting to get better, Patch. They're starting to lean into this Pacific Division conversation a little bit more. But they do have a
0: gaping hole on their blue line now, and specifically that hole is sized six foot six, two hundred forty-eight pounds. As the Vancouver Canucks acquired Nikita Zadorov from the Flames for a third-round pick and the fifth-round pick that they acquired from the Blackhawks when they traded Anthony Beauvillier earlier this week. A tidy piece of business from Patrick Alvine. A good week on that front for Canucks management. And Nikita Zadorov. we expect at this point, is going to make his Canucks debut in Calgary on Saturday night against his former team, and you could just tell from the way that Rick Talkett was raving about Zadorov after the game on Thursday against Vegas that they're very excited to have this player in particular in the fold now and a big part of their back end, pardon the pun.
1: Well, he does address a need, and something that we've talked about at length here on this podcast and on the airwaves is, you know, without Carson Susi. You're starting to look at a, a team that, in front of the net, a little bit easier to play against. Getting into the zone with the denials are a little tougher to come by for the Vancouver Canucks. So you know that ability to a have a, a physical presence, which is obvious. You mentioned his frame. You en- mentioned you know how big he is, uh, but in terms of a skill set too there's a bit of an intimidation factor in the defensive zone, but definitely in the neutral zone where you got to keep your head on a swivel when Nikita Zadorov's on the ice. And Batch, I will say this too, different type of personality of a player too. This guy's guy a, uh, loves the game. He's a very, like a loose individual in terms of telling you how it is, as we saw in Calgary. But what I like on the ice with him is that you're going to have a little bit of versatility, and the Canucks need that, right? We talk about... Noah Juleson being able to play at the NHL level, uh he's not an everyday NHLer, but he has been playing like one for the last little bit here. Mar- uh, you know Mark Friedman, another option uh, that the Canucks have had, not necessarily uh an everyday NHLer either. So with Zadorov stepping in, you get an everyday NHLer, a guy that you can rely on 18 to 19 minutes to play a certain style and is a as a redwood of a player. It's tough to get pucks through when he's on the ice if he's standing in the lane, something that the Canucks dearly need.
0: And let's hear from Rick Talkett. I alluded to what he said after the game on Thursday, but let's get it from the horse's mouth. Here's Rick talk after the game about acquiring Nikita Zadorov.
2: Uh, we're really excited. He's a big guy. He can skate, he can shoot. Um, and, you know, he uh, talked to him today, uh, uh, you know, a couple hours before the game hour before the game, really excited to come here. Um, I think in our environment it can really help him. You know, he's in. It was it last year of his deal? Well, I mean, this is. You know, I'm sure he's going to be fired up to play. Um, and we need we need minutes. We're you know we're, we're playing some other guys too much, and you can tell it's starting to wear on our defense. So he's a much needed guy. It's a great trade for us.
0: How could it change the complexion of your blue line? Getting him in here, potentially getting Susie back healthy. You've got Myers, who's a big defenseman as well, having that size back
2: there. Well, long. You know disruptive sticks in the lanes uh uh cycle busters you know like uh get in the cycle you know knock some people down and I'll be honest net front too I mean you know much needed clear the front of the net type of guy you know he'll take sticks he'll take bodies out of there um and that's going to help our team is he a guy you've had your your own sort of coaching eye on for a while whether it was going to the <clears throat> yeah he's always intrigued me like i've never you know i've never Wherever I've been saying, hey, like, try to trade. I, I just like the, the big defenseman, like, who can skate. What do you have, 14? Because he had 14 goals last year, I think. So um, he's, got a, he's got a great shot, too. Um, he just fits the model that we want to have here. And, um, you know, that long guy that can skate. And, um, and, and, like I said, he's really excited to come, which is nice. So a couple of things there that stand
0: out from what Talkit had to say about Zadorov, Randy. First of all, um, you can just hear the excitement in his voice. Uh, He also brought up the fact that Zadorov was a 14-goal scorer last year. He's got a shot from the top of the point, so they've already got Philip Hironik that can shoot the puck. Zadorov can do that now. And on top of a lot of things that his size brings to this back end, he also highlighted being able to play in front of his own net, defend well in that regard, move guys out of the way, tie sticks up and all these sorts of things that help you a heck of a lot when you're hemmed in your own zone
1: it totally does and I think the example against Vegas was a a really important one where on one side of the ice you had a team that a Aiden Hill was on his game but there were no second chances first of all you know even if a rebound was spilled out which it rarely happened with Aiden Hill in the net uh, the Vegas Golden Knights get it out and that's where I think the ability to box out effectively, the ability to help your goaltender out and move that puck out quickly, uh, get it out of the danger zone is something that is really important and the you know just to take players off course, when you're going in a straight line and you're able to generate speed, it's going to be a lot easier for the opposition, the offense to draw penalties for those uh, those offensive chances to turn into scoring chances. But when you have a big player like a Nikita Zadorov, just able to throw you off course a little bit, cuts down on that speed. Your angle has to be different to the path to the net has to be different. It makes a huge difference. So the excitement in Rick Tockett's voice. Yeah, this is a player that you can see, uh, you can tell that the coach has had probably his eye on for the last couple of years, wherever he's coached or wherever he's watched hockey. And there's an immediate need on the Canucks now. You look at players on that lineup, especially in the back end. Ian Cole, six foot one, not a small guy, but you have now you know a six foot eight player in Tyler Myers. You have a six foot five player in Carson Soucy. You have a six foot six player Nikita Zadorov, and all of these guys can also move the puck a little bit at the very least. Are mobile. That does change the equation where Rick Tockett in the last few games has mentioned when the Canucks reset when they're taking steps back, and you know, four checks are, are throwing them off course a little bit in terms of the defenseman moving the puck freely. Uh, it does slow them down as a team. All three of those guys I mentioned are big guys, but they can also make a pass. You need to have that in your your locker, so to speak, to play the way that Rick Tockett wants to play.
0: And it's a pity that they weren't able to get Zadorov into the game against Vegas on Thursday because he's the kind of player that they could have used in that game. And I think mm-hmm. back to the first goal against, where there's sort of a scramble in front of the net, and Barbashev eventually is able to dig it home. While you know some of the coverage on that goal wasn't exactly what you'd want in the defensive end of the ice. Anyway, Zadorov is another one of those kind of players that maybe help settle down a situation like that and at worst is a big body that maybe can get in front of of a shot like that if there is chaos around the Vancouver crease
1: for sure and listen there's going to be i think um a lot of talk in this market about you know what kind of player is he we've seen him provide a little bit of offense But this is a guy that you can lean on defensively. And there's going to be mistakes. There's no such thing as a perfect player out there. But I think with his physicality, with his ability to get into those lanes, it's something that they need five on five, but also on the penalty kill. More shots are getting through. There are situations where, you know, that maybe that strength we saw at the beginning of the year, where they were taking away some of those chances, uh, you're seeing power plays have more success against this team. You're finding a little bit more room to operate. So there is going to be a a situation where you're looking at this team and you're saying, okay, you need somebody to fill that void. And I think with Nikita Zadorov, he's able to do that. But Batch, there are some things in his game. Having watched him, especially the last couple of years in Calgary, a fair bit, uh, this is a guy that is going to be a little bit more versatile. He can provide offense. We saw the 14 goals last year. But on this Canucks team, I don't necessarily see that being a part of his game to the extent it's going to be. Hey, we want you to play some tough minutes. We want you to be strong physically. And if there's an opportunity to play offense, depending on who you're playing with, sure, show it to us. But that's not the reason you're here. The reason is we want you to be one of the meanest, nastiest guys you can be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he had some opportunity, I think, last year in Calgary. But when you look at uh, Queen Hughes and Philip Heronik and and all of the guys that are on this blue line, it's not like we're going to expect him to get a ton of power play time or, or anything like that. So the the goal totals are not what they're looking for from this defenseman. They're just looking for another guy that can make it harder on opposition and, and can make life harder in the Canucks zone and then can transition the puck up the ice as well I alluded to it when we got into this conversation but I think we do need to take a moment to recognize the work that Patrick Alvin has done this week you take advantage of a a weird situation that you could have never anticipated with the Corey Perry thing in Chicago and suddenly the Blackhawks are willing to acquire a player and not only are you able to move off of all of Beauvillier's salary but you get a draft pick in return and then you're able to flip that draft pick as part of the trade to acquire Zadorov which addresses a need that you have in the short term and then they could uh, potentially have it be something that solves a situation for them in the long term if they are able to come to a contract extension with him because he is a pending unrestricted free agent a, a nice week for Patrick Alvin a couple of really shrewd moves I think
1: for sure and you know part of that the nature of being an NHL GM is A, getting being in the right time at you know, the right situation at the right time, making the call at the right time. And to your point about the Bavilion move, that's something that's extremely vital there. There's a team that with the Blackhawk situation and Corey Perry and all of that, uh, there's a need on that roster. And Anthony Bavillia goes from being a Vancouver Canuck playing on the third or fourth line to being now playing next to Connor Bedard on the first line in Chicago. But the reason that happens is that there's a need in Chicago, there's a need in Vancouver, and you have to make sure that you're in on a conversation. And from what we've heard, and the stats back this up with Patrick Alvine, he's in on every single conversation. The trades that have been made in the NHL, Patrick Alvine has the wide majority of them, more than half of the trades that have been made in the last eight. Uh, that's a That's a guy that is clearly very active on the phone. So to be able to set up a move like that, very similar to... You know, the deal that Travis Hammond was dealt from Vancouver to Ottawa, and what happens? Travis Dermott ends up coming to uh, Vancouver in a deal. That's a situation where you're taking advantage of a situation. You're setting up one move for the other, and that's exactly what they did here, where the opportunity arose, and then you strike to get a defenseman, and the importance there was that they did not... You know, the Calgary Flames didn't want to retain salary, and there was other suitors out there that would have required that, but the Vancouver, you know, combo move, if you want to call it that, set up the fact that they didn't have Calgary to, uh, they didn't need Calgary to retain that money. And, and as a result, the deal got done to pick up Zodorov. So very savvy business. And for the price that was paid, a third and a fifth, uh, much lower than we thought. We had this discussion last week, Batch, where you're kind of having that conversation of what would Zadorov cost? A lot of people thought it would be a first rounder, maybe a late first rounder, definitely a second rounder. Uh, That clearly wasn't the case.
0: Yeah, I thought it was going to be a lot more expensive, and I think you can sort of credit the work that the Canucks management group did by looking at some of the conversations coming out of Calgary where – you know, a lot of what I've seen is that's it. That's all they could get for Zadorov. Did they need to rush and make this trade right now? And I think the other interesting part of this conversation is that because that fifth round pick from the Beauvillier trade was included in this, it becomes part of the Bo Horvat trade tree. And if you look at how that entire trade has now broken down, the Canucks gave up Bo Horvat, a second round pick, now a third round pick in the Zadorov trade. And a fourth round pick, and they bring in Philip Horonik, who has been incredible value for what he's given them this year. Nikita Zadorov, who's a player that they really think will address a serious need on their blue line and could very well be set to sign a long term extension here before the end of the season as well. And Atu Ratu, who's a prospect that they're very high on playing in Abbotsford right now. So, um, you know, as much as I think when you've gone through the various steps of this trade tree, like people initially didn't like the heroic trade because they didn't want to give up the first round pick that had been acquired, you kind of see the vision and you see where the management group is looking and the players they've brought in make a lot of sense, especially with the start the team has had this season in terms of trying to address needs both in the short term, but guys that could be here for the long term as well.
1: Well, and that's really the interesting part of the Zadorov conversation here is that as of right now, this acts as a rental, right? There's no extension in place. There's no, um, you know, this is a player that's going to be a UFA at the end of the year, but he's in that late 20s range, you know, where you could look at an extension and with his agent, of course, Dan Milstein, there's always talk of an extension and a contract between Milstein and his clients here in Vancouver, but that does offer up a short-term solution batch uh, a midterm solution in the sense that even when Carson Soucy comes back, uh, this is going to be a player that can play on the right-hand side or one of those left-shot defensemen can play on the right-hand side to occupy a need. And then once we start thinking about beyond this season, at his age, can Nikita Zadorov essentially occupy a spot? That would be Ian Cole's, right? And if Ian Cole is not coming back to Vancouver next season, if he's, which we know he's a UFA, uh, if there is a, a change in terms of uh, status in terms of you know bringing another another big body, another body uh, is Nikita zadorov uh, you know, a, a worthy candidate for an extension. Part of that will be how he plays here. But you do start w- thinking about the the long term ramifications of this deal because, yes, in the immediate need he helps out. But is this potentially a long term play too?
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to me. And that's kind of what we had talked about in the week leading up to this trade where like credit to you, you said, you know, I think they're going to go after him. And I was sort of skeptical initially because I thought the price was going to be too high. And I was sort of thinking, look, if you really want Nikita Zadorov and he really wants to come to Vancouver, he's going to be a free agent in the off season anyway. You know, assuming he, wasn't in that hypothetical world traded to another team and signed an extension with them why would you give up premium assets to go and get him now when you could get him for free to replace Ian Cole come July 1st now as it played out the Canucks didn't need to give up premium assets in order to bring Zadorov in and I think another crucial part of this trade is there's no conditions on any of these picks either. Like, it's not a situation where you see a lot of trades these days for rental players have conditional picks that come into effect if the team signs him to an extension so that, you know... Just hypothetically, you acquire a player at the deadline whose contract's going to expire, and in the trade, there's a conditional second-round pick or a conditional first-round pick that says, if this guy plays for you next season, we get another draft pick. The Canucks didn't have to involve themselves with anything like that either, so they don't have to pay a ton to bring in Zodorov and now they have the option, if they want to, to keep him here beyond the end of this year without it penalizing them at all.
1: Yeah, part of it is, you know, seeing how he plays, but there's a certain personality, there's a certain trait that the Canucks do want here. Uh, Part of that is the physicality, part of that is also size. It's no you know coincidence, obviously, that they end up going after this player, after Rick Tockett, for the last two weeks, especially Batch, has been talking about how good Vegas is, what their defense is able to do. Uh, We saw them in the last game, even without Alec Martinez and Shea Theodore, who's on the smaller side. um, Still such a Uh, such a solid defense where they don't give you anything. And this deal happens, this move happens uh, to bring the Canucks closer to that style of defensive unit. So, you know, overall, I start looking at what they're able to do. I think it's savvy business. I think it sets up well in the short term. If and when this team ends up making the playoffs, you obviously have a lot of runway. It's December right now, but beyond, looking beyond, and if they're a, a team that's, you know, still picking up points in March, And in April, Zadorov is a player that is very much in that mold of, you know, long. You've got a a very physical player and a player that really can play well in the playoffs. It's just a matter of getting there now for the Canucks.
0: Yeah. And you touch on the game against Vegas. And, you know, we heard from Rick Talkett mentioning how much he likes the Golden Knights defensive core and, and their size and their ability to break up pucks in passing lanes and and also their ability to skate and transition the puck and you know we talked about this last night and we sort of used the talk it term learning lesson when it comes to that game for the Canucks and, and falling four to one to the Golden Knights and certainly Vancouver didn't have its a game what do you look at as the lesson that the Canucks should learn coming out of that game if they want to continue to grow and get to a point where they can be at the very least more competitive against a team like Vegas if not outright perform very well against them
1: yeah I think there's a couple of lessons here one for the players and puck management is so important especially at the upper tiers of the NHL if you're going to give away the puck and we're not even talking about your own zone or the neutral zone Uh, If you are just going to, you know, play the puck into a soft area uh, or in an area where none of your teammates are, there's no puck battle that ensues, the really good teams with their speed, with their hockey IQ will beat you within seconds up the ice and they'll make you pay. And we saw that happen on the 2-0 goal that Vancouver surrendered by Vegas. So puck management against the really good teams, against defenses that can advance the puck so quickly, you have to be... You have to be really limiting your mistakes in every second of the game from a management perspective i think the learning here is you know there's still a long way to go in terms of building uh the types of players you want on your roster and that's not a criticism of you know the management of the team and the bringing of you know players in but we have to remember that this is still you know this is a marathon race you're not expected to be a stanley cup contender in two or three months this is about you know understanding what you have on your roster and understanding what the cup champions have so you look at a Barbershev, you look at guys like, you know, Paul Cotter that are further down the lineup, you look at Chandler Stevenson, who was back checking hard in the last uh, few seconds of this game. The quality uh, and the support to your stars is something that you have to, you have to like tweak as the seasons go on. Sometimes you're going to have to be aggressive. Sometimes you have to draft well. Sometimes you have the benefit of an expansion draft if you're Vegas. But th- I think for, uh, you know, the team building aspect, it just shows you that players with hockey IQ and um, that building happens all the time it doesn't stop so I think there was a learning from that was okay there's some good players on this roster but we still have to tweak every now and then I think Patrick Alvine has been saying as much in his media availabilities
0: as has Jim Rutherford who coming Mm -hmm. into the season said that everything would have to go right for them to be a playoff team and let's be honest most things have gone right for them to this point in the season but uh you know this reminds me of another thing we were talking about during the game last night Which is that organizational depth that Vegas has. And you're right, you know, the expansion draft helped that. The way that they weaponized the expansion draft to acquire a ton of picks has helped with that. And this is a team that lost some players that were with them on their Stanley Cup run last year. Riley Smith's not there anymore. You know, Teddy Bluger's now a Vancouver Canuck. There are a handful of guys that left that organization, and yet everyone on their roster right now is someone that was in the organization last year. So they have confidence in their depth. They were able to fill in some of those holes with guys that they already had in the organization, and that sets them up potentially to go and do something prior to the trade deadline to make themselves even better. From a Canucks perspective, you know, that was never going to happen overnight. It's a work in progress, and it's not something that is just going to be accomplished with one improved season like what we're seeing this year. You know, the point that they're always building is a very strong one to make because, as much as this team has come a long way, we can see obvious holes in the roster. We've been talking about defensive depth, and I think, you know, even the right side of the blue line is something that they could still address in spite of the fact that they acquired Zadorov as the left shot, and then you look up the lineup and some of the mixing we've seen in the top six leads you to believe that, you know, there's at least another high-end winger that this team could use as well, mm-hmm. if not more. So, um, you know, you don't flip the switch from being a team that really struggled last year to being a Stanley Cup contender overnight. But all of that said, I think the the aggressive moves that Rutherford and Alvin have made here to try and accelerate that process appear to be hitting and hitting with consistency. And this is something that Alvin spoke about in his media availability earlier in the week after the Bovillier trade, when he was asked about how good their pro scouting has been and how some of the bets they've made with guys they've brought in. Sam Lafferty is a good example right away. Uh, Bovillier had some good stretches during his time with the Canucks, played in the top six a bit. Like they're pro scouting and they're, assessment of talent in trying to help this roster has been pretty good because you know the conversations we're having around how this team is playing right now to me they're more about guys struggling up the lineup not so much about guys struggling down the lineup this is the best that the bottom six forward group has been for the Vancouver Canucks at least in my mind during my time calling these games and this is season number seven of us having the games here on Sportsnet 650.
1: Yeah, we're going to give out a roses a little bit later on, but I think this, you know, the third line of this team, Dakota Joshua, Teddy Bluger, and Connor Garland is an example of that where, you know, against Vegas, who was the best line? Who's the only line that wasn't broken up? It was that third line. So overall, adding that depth, adding other options to the top six are important, but you're right, you know, in terms of wingers in that top six, there's still something that you got to figure out there. And this just reinforces the fact that this is a marathon. You don't win anything in a sprint in the NHL, whether it's over a season or two seasons as you're building a team. So you have to chip away every single year. You have to have, you know, a deep team. You have to have depth in in twos and threes, essentially uh, that next man up policy. And the Canucks um, got a, I think a, a humbling for sure against the Vegas Golden Knights. But remember the Vegas Golden Knights are a finished product. The Vancouver Canucks are not.
0: You're listening to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Bachelor, and Randeep Janda. Still plenty more to come on the show. We'll look ahead to the game against Calgary on Saturday night when we come back and talk about some of that line blending that we saw from Rick Talkett on Thursday as well. It's all still to come right here on In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Bachelor, and Randy Janda. If you miss any part of the program, you can download this as a podcast as well. It's on the Canucks Central feed, so make sure to subscribe. You get Sat and Reach and their show every day of the week. You get all the post game shows with Sat and Bick, and you get In the Booth as well wherever you find your podcasts. And Randy, I talked about it before the break, but the Canucks getting set for a matchup on Saturday night with the Calgary Flames. And to me, one of the most compelling things going into this game from a Canucks perspective is obviously going to be the Zadorov game. Uh, His first as a Canuck playing against his former team in Calgary. We've kind of touched on that already, but I'm interested to see what the forward lines are going to look like because we saw Andre Kuzmenko, Moved on to a line with Miller and Besser in the third period against Vegas on Thursday. We saw Elias Pettersson centering Niels Hoaglander and Sam Lafferty. Uh, as we always joke about, uh, Rick Tockett got out his Travis Green line blender available for three easy payments of 19.99. Yes, the Black Friday sale is now over. Uh, but do we think Kuzmenko sticks on that line? Because Tockett kind of alluded to it
1: after the game. I like the way he played on that line. I'm sure it was the goal helps with that. But even before that, a little bit more active in the neutral zone, it seems like with two north-south players, Kuzmenko also kind of starts to think that way. So I'd like to see it continue into the next game with Miller on one side, with Besser on the other. And if that does happen, what does that mean for Elias Petterson? Because later on in that game, with Elias Petterson we saw Niels Hoaglander and Sam Lafferty. And you can understand the north-south elements of Sam Lafferty, but is that a player that will pop up on the first line, top six yet again? I I don't know. I think they had that experiment. More than anything, I think the Niels Hoaglander experiment maybe in the top six might start pretty soon because he's a player that Rick Tockett has mentioned that he'd like to see more minutes go his way. He's not a power play player. He's not a penalty kill player. So five on five, he's kind of that buzzsaw that he likes to have out there. He likes to get him some ice. He likes him to play with that recklessness, as he calls it. So is this a potential reward for Hoaglander, who's played better, but you do need some north-south players, some guys that are spark plugs playing next to Elias Pettersson, and the way that, you know, Phil DiGiuseppe has played in the top six, uh, there's a reason he's playing with the fourth line in that last game. He's just not able to find that speed right now. Niels Hoaglander has found that speed, and in some pretty good spurts in the last three or four games batch. So I think Kuzmenko with Miller makes sense for the next game. Also, I'd like to see if maybe Hoaglander gets his chance in the top six based on the last game.
0: Yeah, that's the interesting thing is it could be really good for Kuzmenko to play with Miller and Besser, but it kind of exposes kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is the need for another top six winger, really a legitimate scoring top six winger if you're going to put all three of those guys on the same line and um you know we're going to get to some listener questions as well so let's kind of tie this in here because it was a good question that we got in from lucy on twitter who asked do they keep miller at center or do they need to adjust the lines a bit to get more out of petterson and I guess technically they could move Miller to the wing because they do have a a couple of guys that can move from the wing to the middle, like Sam Lafferty's playing the wing right now. He can be in the middle. Neil Zolman's in the middle. Teddy Bluger's in the middle. Pugh Suter can play the middle when he comes back. But, you know, with the the way that their center ice position is now structured, I don't think that moving Miller out of the center ice position – is really an option for them because then you're asking one of those other guys I mentioned to play top six minutes down the middle, and I don't know if any of them are well set up for that.
1: Yeah, that's a no for me because to your point, if you load up on that top line, you know, the benefit right now is that you have Elias Petterson or JT Miller playing against a, a tough matchup. And I know for JT against Vegas, it was tough. Like, that was a, a, a matchup he lost, but you look at what Vegas has to offer with Eichel, Carlson and Chandler Stevenson that's not a normal you know top three line combination down the middle like those guys are stacked they've got players that play the right way they've got players that are you know really at the upper echelon of the game when it comes to playing in waves where not every single team is going to be able to offer that and looking at Calgary yeah they've got Nazem Kadri, they've got Michael Backlund uh, they've got combinations that they can use down the middle as well it's not like they're they're playing with basically AHL level players. So every single game you're going to have matchups where you're going to need to win the top six. And when you take out JT Miller from the equation, you put him on the wing, uh, that's a lot for Teddy Bluger to do. Uh, Pew Suter not in the mix, but even if Pew Suter was healthy, you know, there's a difference between being comfortable with a third line center and then asking them to take tough matchups and also generate offense, which is very, very difficult to do. So, Batch, when we talk about tier one and tier two centers on this team, it's Pedersen and Miller, and in today's NHL, most teams do have, you know, a pretty solid one-two punch. I think if you move away from that, uh, you're opening yourself up to get soundly beaten on the other three lines if you load up in one.
0: Yeah, so, you know, that's an interesting question, Lucy, but I I don't see them doing that, except situationally. Like, we've seen... You know, him throw the lotto line together in games in the third period where they need a goal. But beyond that, um, you know, JT Miller is going to stay in that spot. And actually, it's more been Pedersen who's gone to the wing and Miller who's stayed in the middle when they have done that situation. Uh we're going to get to some more listener questions here too Randy, but let's just quickly set up the game on Saturday against the Flames and you're right, Calgary is uh putting themselves back in the conversation. They're coming into this game with three wins in their last four, a couple of those wins over the Dallas Stars. They also beat Vegas in overtime on Monday. So, they've been playing better. And although they don't have Nikita Zadorov in their lineup right now, this is an opportunity for Calgary to win a big four-point game with a team in the Canucks that I wouldn't say they're coming back down to earth, but when you look at how they've performed in the last 10 games or so as opposed to the start of the season, they're at least going through a dip in their form right now to some extent.
1: Yeah, that's the reality here, Batch, where this is a team that started off so, so hot and now you're starting to run in some issues. And one of those issues that I would say is uh, starting to crop up a little bit here is you've got, you know, five-on-five production is been has been an issue for this team over the last week or so, uh, just generating opportunities, getting to the middle of the ice. So when I'm watching this game, and we're going to be covering this game on Saturday night, are you able to break through to the middle of the ice? And the reason I say that against this Calgary team is, as you mentioned, they've played better. And they only allowed 16 shots on goal against a very good Dallas Stars team in their last game. So that's a team that has been able to open up offensively a little bit, that is finding some confidence. And from a Canucks perspective, that top six, that first line with Pedersen, that second line with JT Miller, being able to create Points and create chances, first of all. Let's let's talk about just chance creation is something that they're gonna to have to do. Win their matchups. This is a team that is starting to get a little bit more confident in Calgary. So, you know, the last time they played, it was it was a different Flames team. It was a team that maybe wasn't as confident now. Uh the tide is turning a little bit here and the Canucks have to get their confidence back.
0: And you know Vancouver will be motivated coming off the loss to Vegas too to respond and show that that's not going to become a trend, and we've heard Ian Cole talk about that among other guys in the Canucks dressing room earlier this season that, you know, good teams will lose games, sure, but you want to make sure you don't lose two or three or four in a row or anything like that. And uh, the trend lately has kind of been win one, lose one, win one, lose one, or at least they're about 500 in the last – 10-plus games or so, so you want to try and break out of that, and the schedule does lighten up a little bit here in the month of December. It's still a very busy month, uh, but there's only one back-to-back. You're essentially playing Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday every week, and then it's not this weekend, but I believe next weekend where they have a Saturday-Sunday back-to-back on the road, so there are days between games. There is going to be opportunity for a little bit more practice, so this kind of ties into another question that that we got from one of the listeners about whether this team is tired right now. And Brian brings this up, says the schedule has seemingly taken a toll on the team in the past few weeks. Do you think we'll start seeing some more consistency from them again in December? He also mentions, you know, how do slumps like this affect Petey's upcoming contract? And he, funnily enough, wants to leave Petey on red. He's contributing his own submission for the Rose Ceremony. says he's been falling too much. And, Brian, thanks for your contribution. I'm not sure I agree with you on leaving Petey on red. But, Randy, let's start with the first part of that question, which is the schedule and whether you think it's taken a toll on this group.
1: I think it has, but that's not unique to the Vancouver Canucks. This is a NHL issue. The November and December you know, months are generally a grind. That's when the grind of this season really starts to hit. So whether you know this team is tired or not, I think Rick Tockett, I think Ian Cole have said it well. You have to learn how to play tired. You have to make sure that you rely on your structure in those moments. So this is another, yet again, learning lesson for this team. But overall, the schedule ahead, you talk about after this Calgary game from December 5th to 14th they're at home which means a couple of things they're not traveling around they're in their beds at night and on top of that they get practice time so the tiredness is one thing but when you're bouncing around all over the continent your practice time is limited and when you're trying to get certain things into your game and out of your game break some bad habits the limited practice time takes a toll so tired sure we can we can you no. Know, Focus on that a little bit, but to me, more than anything, it's about when you're bouncing around, when you're on road trips and you're having a, a three-game road trip here there, and then you come back home for a day or two, um, it really limits your practice time. So I think that's the more important part of it than the actual travel and then being tired.
0: Yeah, lots of teams have to deal with travel, although certainly on the West Coast, the, the travel is often more hectic, and I think the schedule has been pretty unrelenting over the last month or so. So the practice time, I think, and we've heard Talkit talk about that and some of the other guys in the dressing room, too, that when they get the opportunity to really bear down on some of their system stuff and some of their execution stuff, we see it immediately in the way that they play. So, um, you know, that that's another reason for positivity that you believe that maybe they'll be better in the month of December than they have been the last month. Now you know with the the Pedersen question here uh, we got a couple of questions in about Pedersen so I want to kind of tie them together. I already mentioned Brian asking about whether a slump like this could affect what his contract looks like Jamie who's an avid listener of the show writes in as well and asks if re-signing is weighing heavily on Pedersen's mind right now does he have an injury? He thinks it's the contract stuff that maybe is affecting Patterson, but you know, it's clear that Elias Patterson, at the very least, you know, much like the team, as I alluded to earlier, is going through a dip in form right now. I guess the question is, is it any more than that?
1: Okay. In terms of the health questions, we got a lot of those messages. We see your tweets, we see your mentions um, and the contract stuff. It's hard to answer that question because otherwise it'd be straight speculation, right? So, Does it probably weigh in a player a little bit mentally? Sure. But we don't know how these guys are specifically wired, whether they focus on that or not. But what we are seeing, Batch, is, you know, uh, a dip in form, so to speak. And that third period against Anaheim was maybe the outlier in the last week or so. But Elias Pettersson is not playing to the same level that he was at the beginning of the year. And does that have to do with injury? Does that have to do with other aspects? I don't know. I can't. I have to honestly answer that question. But in terms of the ability to win matchups, that's what I think about when you're talk, talking about any top six, you know, line. Are you when you're on the ice? Are you able to you know handle your business? Are you able to keep the puck in the opposition's end? Are you able to outscore the opposition? The answer to that is, in the last week or so, in the last few games, Elias Pettersson hasn't been able to do that. So there has been a couple of things where you know he's losing that matchup uh, in the, of the Vegas game is a classic example where the shot attempts were 13 to four for that line Elias Petterson himself did not have a single shot attempt in that game which is a problem so he's not shooting uh, he's not in a position to set himself up for a, a shot his line is not going right now and that to me is a problem based on the fact that you know when you are playing Looking at the schedule, you're going to be playing against a pretty decent top six in the Calgary Flames. you got New Jersey coming to town. We know what they can do when they play a fast game. Carolina's coming, and you know what they can do. They're a a pretty comprehensive team themselves. Tampa Bay, Florida, like these teams that I mentioned that Vancouver's got in the schedule over the next two weeks are teams that have loaded top sixes. So you have to be able to, to manage your matchups and try to, at the very least, break even And in the last few games here, at least Pedersen has struggled with that. So whatever's going on, Batch, the reality is this top six in the next two weeks is going to have to do the heavy lifting here. Having a third line that can, you know, camp out in the offensive zone, be aggressive on the forecheck, win possession is one thing, but your big boys get you the Ws. And they're going to have to sort that out here in the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, and they've got to be able to do it at five on five, not just on the power play, which, you know, admittedly has been very good this year. Of course it has. You know, you look at how well they execute and the guys that they have on that power play unit. But to me, this question comes back around less to Pedersen's individual play and more about trying to complement him with guys who can allow him to have success. And you're right. That line with Mikheyev and Kuzmenko hasn't been going right now. And although we already talked about, how it might be good for Kuzmenko to plot him with Miller and Besser. Who does that leave Pedersen with? Thursday night, the answer to that question was Hoaglander and Lafferty. So um, that's not exactly how you want your top six to be built out. And it certainly doesn't give Elias Pedersen the greatest opportunity for success. So, you know, it's an interesting question. And I, I don't really know what the answer is to it right now. And I think it's why we've seen. Rick Tockett used the Travis Green line lender, as I always bring up, is because he's trying to find something right now to help Pedersen in some cases, but also to, to try and catch that lightning in a bottle that this team had early in the year where all four lines were rolling so well. And I think a common denominator to why that hasn't happened to a certain extent is is the absence of Pew Suter from this lineup as well, which is something that, you know, it, it's kind of easy to forget. He's been out for a while now. Alvin downgraded his status from day-to-day to week-to-week earlier this week. So uh, I don't know if or when we're going to see him in the near future, but he was a guy that I think helped balance out some of those lines, and they obviously don't have that right now.
1: No, they don't, and that's something that, you know, yeah, the word balance, where you're able to take Maybe you know a little bit more responsibility on the defensive uh, aspect, and one thing that I've liked about his game is there's defensive composure there. Uh, Against Vegas, uh, there wasn't that much composure, so you're starting to see a little bit of uh, maybe a cracks there against elite teams. Uh, When I look at Pedersen, one area that I think we need to focus on with him is you know the ability to to play with certain, you know, players. And you talked about Kuzmenko potentially playing with JT Miller. We had that discussion in the first segment of the show. Um, If that continues, yeah, what kind of player are you looking for next to Elias Patterson? Because his line mates do matter. Are you looking for, you know, those straight line players? And Niels Hoaglander and Sam Lafferty are very much those guys. Uh, So when I look at Sam Lafferty, uh, that's going to be a very, I think, lofty assignment for him if he gets it, especially for an extended period of time. But you need players internally to have that competition. You need that uh, to to really push each other. And I thought Phil Giuseppe did a good job of that in the top six, but hasn't been consistent of late. Are you able to be able to hit your spot on the forecheck when you're playing next to Elias Pettersson. That's the most important thing. I think Lafferty's done that since he's been a Vancouver Canuck, but doing it on the top line versus the third or fourth line is a very different standard. We're pleasantly surprised with Sam Lafferty when he's doing it on the third line, but you have expectations of not only doing it batch, but also getting some production when you're playing on a top line. So the equation does change. Just because a player has success on the third line, uh, we do look at that player in a different way when they're playing on the first or second line.
0: We've got a couple more questions here that we can get to before our time is up here on In the Booth. And here's one that we can really sink our teeth into, I think, Randy. Johnny writes in and says, when all our defensemen are healthy, what do you think the best way to deploy the pairings could be or, or should be? And this is a fascinating question because oh, yeah. now that they've acquired Zadorov, in my mind, four of their best six defensemen are now left handed. And because of the injuries they've had, most notably to Susie, we've seen in the last couple of weeks that they've been willing to play right shot guys on the left side. We have yet to see them in the regular season with any level of consistency play a left shot guy on the right side so I think that's where we have to start this conversation is who is the most likely left shot candidate to move to the right side and you know I'll be interested to know what you think Randy my opinion is that it's Ian Cole because he's a guy that's done it uh he has played large portions of his career on the right side he's talked about how he's comfortable with it that would be my vote what would you look at in terms of the left shot guy there's Hughes there's Cole, as I mentioned, there's Susie, and now there's Zadorov that all shoot left. Is there anyone in that group that to you makes the most sense to play on the right side?
1: Hughes and Hronik, I'm not touching that pairing. I want them to be that elite pairing that they've been. Now, in terms of moving the lefty to the right hand side, I'm with you. I think Ian Cole is the player that I'd like to see there. Uh, we've been talking about since the preseason, and I was somebody that was advocating to have Ian Cole on the right hand side next to Quinn Hughes uh, before the Horonic Hughes combination was created. So, I'd like to have Ian Cole on that right hand side. And who does he play next to? Um, You know, there's an interesting perspective there. I wouldn't mind Zadorov there, to be quite honest with you. I think Zadorov and Cole on that second pair. And when Susie is ready to go, you have a natural Susie and Myers third pair, which we've seen in the past. And, you know, Zadorov and Susie are kind of interchangeable. They generally play around 18 to 19 minutes. Um, So with Ian Cole, I'd like to see if uh, he could move to the right-hand side. Because you're right, he played that in Tampa Bay next to a very special defenseman in Victor Hedman. He played the right-hand side in Carolina as well, next to some pretty good defensemen there. So based on experience, give that opportunity to Cole, and then Zdorov and Carson Soucy have played the right a bit, not totally comfortable there, leave them on the left-hand side.
0: I think the interesting part of the question from Johnny is he asks how they should go or how they could go. And so I agree, if I'm drawing up the pairings, I'm going Hughes-Haronic, we're keeping them together, I'm going to go Zadorov cole and then I'm going to go susie Myers because they've played together and had some success when playing together earlier this year. But based on the fact that they, at least to my memory, did not try Ian Cole on the right side really at all through training camp, and it was Carson Susie that was the player that they looked at at one point. With Hughes on the right side through camp, you know, I think it should be Ian Cole that moves to the right side. But I wonder if it will be Carson Susie who moves to the right side and how that changes the complexion of the way they may build their pairings. And of course, we have to provide the caveat that this is all assuming that they can get all six of these guys healthy at the same time, which is not necessarily a fair assumption with Susie yeah. out long term now.
1: Totally. And you know, once your five on five game is maybe not generating as much as you want, what do you do? You generally end up in your own defensive zone. That's when you start blocking shots. That's when you're hit on the, the four check. So uh, it's important that this team figures out at five on five play, because as Canucks teams in the past have shown, the more you're camped out in your own zone, that's all scope, generally a greater risk of injury. So, you know, this is something that, especially at the back end, when you're blocking more shots, you're getting hit on that four check. So Health is something that you always have to watch out for in this league. It's a grinding physical league. uh, But when all things are right, if all things are right, that's the way I see it as well. And then maybe as your extra defenseman, probably Noah Juleson. I think Mark Friedman. Remember, this is a guy that did not have too much experience before he got to Vancouver, and he's already nearing a career high in games, which is telling you something. Yes, indeed it is. So, you
0: know, it'll be interesting to see how that blue line develops who's in the lineup and who's out of the lineup on a nightly basis as well all right we've just got a few minutes left on the show so let's get to the rose ceremony as we do it every week and randeep i'll let you do the honors who is your rose going to this week
1: all right my rose is going to three guys on that third line dakota joshua teddy Bluger, connor garland in a game and in a week really it was a lot of up down for the canucks this is the one constant this line is able to actually play well and generate at the very least win the territorial advantage and compared to some of the other lines batch this line wasn't broken up either so i've liked their effort i think dakota joshua after being scratched against san jose earlier this year has come back motivated and you can see in his game and also connor garland remember there's a trade conversation all of that to begin the year and he's responded by playing well. Yeah, very well
0: that line has played, too. And Teddy Bluger, I think, deserves a lot of credit for sliding in there relatively seamlessly with Pugh Souter being out of the lineup and doing a great job there, too. Uh, My rose, I alluded to it earlier, but it's an easy one. I'll take it anyway. It's going to Patrick Alvine this week. As I said, I think tremendous work to create the cap space, to move out a player in a position of strength on the wing, and then bring in a player... That addresses a direct need for this team in Nikita Zadorov. And we'll see how things play out in terms of a, a contract extension for Zadorov. But my rose goes to Patrick Alveen. Really good work this week from the Canucks general manager. All right, before we get out of here, Randeep, you're going to be on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi tomorrow night. What do you guys have coming up on the show?
1: First up, we've got Montreal, Detroit. And second of all, Vancouver, Calgary. So the Nikita Zadorov revenge game, number two. Uh, on our Hockey Night in Canada, Pinjubbie Doubleheader. And I'll
0: have the call with Brett Festerling, pinch-hitting for you right here on Sportsnet 650. The pregame show gets underway at 6. The drop of the puck will be just after 7. Thanks for joining us here on In the Booth this week. If you missed any part of the show, you want to catch up, as I said already, make sure to get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts on the Canucks Central feed. And we'll talk to you again next week right here on Sportsnet 650.